All right. How are we doing this morning? Good? Yeah? Great? Awesome. Hey, I love that we're this close to Christmas, right? Christmas is right around the corner. Christmas Eve, Eve, right? Like the day before Christmas Eve, the day that we've been waiting for, whether it's because, you know, we just are one of those people who are just absolutely in love with the idea of Christmas and you like start decorating in June or July and you're just waiting or you're waiting for Christmas to be here so it can be over depending on how many children you have and that sort of thing, right? Or depending on how much food you had to make or, you know, how much stuff you had to bake or how many family Christmas parties you had to go to, right? So either way, Christmas is almost here. I hope by now most of you have your Christmas shopping done. If you have not, you're a little late. Um, Unless you're a man. If you're a man, you're still early. If you're a man, it'll be about, you know, 10 o'clock tomorrow before you start shopping. And I guess that's normal. Um, But I'm so glad that we're here to be able to talk about Christmas Pastor Frank has walked us through this Constructing Christmas series. Um, We've talked from the Old Testament to now. We finally built and built and built and built until we get to this process of actually constructing the Christmas story. So today, I get the awesome privilege of sharing with you Christmas. Um, We've been building up through the prophets. We've been building up through the vision, through the blueprint. Well, today, we are actually going to go through the actual birth of, of Christ, right? The actual birth of Jesus. And I'm so excited to be able to share that with you. Um, hopefully you'll learn uh, just as much as I have about going through this. It's like uh, Pastor just mentioned, you know, ever since you, you, you're, you're little, you know, if you grow up in church or even if you don't, you still hear the Christmas story. And I try every year to, to learn something a little different or look at it from a little different perspective, whatever that seems to look like. But I'm so glad to be able to be here and share a little bit about what what I've learned. Because I've learned a lot from what Pastor's been talking about these past couple weeks. As him and I have been sort of working on this together, I'm I'm, I'm seeing new things that I've never seen before, which is is really cool. Um, So in the first week, as as we're building this construction, this kind of construction theme, in the first week we talked about the vision. You have to have a a vision of something that you're going to build, right? You, You don't just go into a construction project and just start hammering stuff together and you have no idea what you want to do, right? That's typically not how it works. You have a a plan, whether you're building something like a house, which is kind of what we've been talking about, or whether you're building something as small as like a birdhouse, right? You you go into it with some sort of vision. You don't just start nailing a bunch of stuff together unless you're me, but that's why I don't do construction projects. But you have a vision and God laid out the vision for Christmas even way back in like Genesis with like Abraham and all that kind of stuff, which Pastor Frank mentioned in the very first uh, sermon of this series. Uh, he had a vision. Even since the beginning of time, he had a vision for what he knew eventually would come to be Christmas. And then also we have a blueprint because after you get a vision, you have to have a blueprint because that's where you start to take that vision. You say, okay, how do we make this work? This is what I want, but how do I make it a reality? How can I actually draw it out to scale? How can I make it like this, and I want it like this, but I may want this too? So you draw it, right? It's a blueprint. It sort of gives you that idea, and it puts it into practice. So the second week, we talked about that blueprint. We talked about how God had sort of been constructing this entire thing. He's like, okay, it, it, it might look like this, and it may sort of look like this as well. And he had kind of almost exactly what it looked like that he laid it out, the redemption of mankind through a savior. That's what his blueprint was. He said, okay, this is what the birth of my son is gonna be. It's to be that savior to redeem mankind. And then last week, we talked about the foundation. There is a huge jump, Pastor mentioned, from a blueprint to a foundation. 
Because that's when you actually take the blueprint and you put it into practice. You say, okay, this is what I had drawn up. This is what was in my head. I put what was in my head on paper. And now I'm actually going to start to do something with it. And not only that, a foundation shows, okay, this is where, like, it's going to be. This is where my house is going to be. This is going to be the layout of the house. This is where it is. So there is a huge jump between sort of this idea of a blueprint and then the idea of actually starting the foundation. Because, again, that shows, hey, this is what it's going to be. And Pastor Frank talked about that last week with the prophets, the prophets were able to foreshadow or prophecy the actual how, what, when, where, why, and all that stuff. They were laying that groundwork. They were laying that foundation for exactly what God wanted. Well, the next logical step after foundation then is to actually build the house, right? Is to build the actual structure. Because a foundation is good and you can walk around the foundation of a house and you can kind of visualize, okay, this is going to be here and that's going to be there. But then you build the actual structure. When you start putting up walls, you start putting in, you know, all of the the piping and you start like kind of framing out the house and then you eventually, you know, paint it and you eventually put like the drywall and the walls and the roof and you can see everything and it starts to actually come together and look like a house. Because that's the end game, right? When you have a blueprint or you have a foundation, that's cool and all, and you can show your friends, like if you have like an artist rendering of what you want your house to be like, if you, you know are building a house or whatever, you can come up with all sorts of ideas and you can show them and you can be like, hey, look, this is what my house is going to look like. And that's all well and good, but that's not the end game. The end game is to actually build the house. So an artist rendering is one thing, but to actually see it and actually be able to step into it and look around and say, this is what all the work, this is what all the preparation has, got, has gone to. This is the end game. This is cool. So what I have the privilege today of showing you is we're going to walk in that structure that we've been building. We're going to walk into that house that we've been constructing for these past three weeks. And we're going to look around and we're going to see exactly what Christmas looks like. We're going to see exactly what God had been planning for the birth of his son. And I think it's so cool that we've kind of gotten this idea of, like, constructing a house. Because if you think about it, that's a lot of, like, what Christmas was. Um, Jesus, or God had been sort of constructing this perfectly. And I want to show you that today. Every single thing about Christmas was perfect and exactly the way that God had planned for it, even though it may not have looked like it. So we're going to walk through a couple different things. And the whole idea of this structure that we've built was sort of, it was perfect for exactly the idea that God intended it to be. It wasn't by mistake. It wasn't by accident. It was years and generations and centuries of meticulous and perfect planning to put the entire plan together. So that's where we're going to pick up, um, is with the actual birth of Jesus. But before we do that, um, we have been talking pretty much most of the time in our Constructing Christmas series in the Old Testament. We've been talking about through Genesis and Abraham, and we walked through the prophets, and we kind of saw God working behind the scenes for the idea of Christmas. But the birth of Jesus, you know, sort of marks the beginning of the New Testament. Well, at this point, between the Old and the New Testament, what a lot of people don't realize is there's a lot of time that passes between that. After the last prophet in Malachi, um, who is the last one of the Old Testament, before we get to Matthew, the part of the New Testament, there are hundreds of years between that time. It's almost sort of as if it's reached a dead end, right? 
Christmas is typically seen as this idea of new beginnings uh, and, and like new births and stuff, right? Because that makes sense because, you know, Jesus is being born and, you know, he's sort of starting this idea of like a, a new reign and, you know, a new savior and that sort of thing. So we get this idea of Christmas as being a new beginning. But if you think about it, in order to have a new beginning, you, you kind of have to have an end somewhere, right? Something has to end before you can start again. And that's sort of what I think we lose a lot of time with Christmas is that, yeah, it was a new beginning, but that's because we had years and centuries and hundreds of years of a dead end. And that's where we reach the Old Testament. That's where we sort of come to a head at the end of the Old Testament. We had all these prophets that Pastor Frank was talking about last week, um, like Isaiah and all those sort of Old Testament prophets towards the end of the Old Testament there that were preaching and prophesying about, about God and about Jesus and about this awesome light that was going to come and save the world because Israel was a dark place at the time. Israel was not following instructions. Israel continued to fall into sin, and it was just a dark time. So after Malachi, heaven kind of goes silent. We kind of reached a dead end. There's nothing. Um, you know, God is not speaking at that point. Heaven sort of, again, just kind of falls and doesn't say anything. So we reach a dead end. And there are years between that time and the end of the Old Testament until we get to the beginning of Matthew, which I think why Matthew 1, and you don't have to turn there, I'll save you some time. Uh, Matthew 1, the very beginning of Matthew, shows basically a genealogy of Jesus' bloodline. Um, it talks about, you know, this generation to this generation to this to this to this to this until eventually you get to Jesus. Well, that kind of serves two purposes. It shows the... Um, sort of bloodline of where Jesus came from and the families and that sort of thing. But it also serves as um, to show us how time passes, how much time passes, right? It shows us, okay, this generation and then this generation and then this generation. It shows us how much time. So what you end up having is you have 42, and you don't have to count it. I did it for you, but you may want to double count me. I'm not very good at math. Um, but you have 42 generations between darkness to when Jesus is born. That's how many of the generations of the this and then this came this and then this person and then this person. You have 42 generations of darkness, 42 generations of Israel not doing what they're supposed to do. And I think that's crazy that it takes 42 generations before, you know, Jesus comes. And that just shows that God had been planning this perfect structure of Christmas for years. And it took that long and it took that much preparation and planning in order to get this perfect structure of Christmas that we have. So what I want to do today is walk you through some of those perfect pieces um, and kind of talk about how God had been working through them, talk about how God used them in order to bring the birth of his son, Jesus. So the first place we're going to be is in Luke chapter 1. And this first part of Luke um, is, Luke is probably one of the most... Um, most often read Christmas stories, it has the most detail. Luke goes into the most detail about Jesus' birth. Um, so most often than not, this is the story of the birth that you've heard. Um, but we're going to be in um, Luke chapter 1, and I want to start with verses 11 through 17. I'm going to skip around a lot, um, just because we don't have time to read the whole thing. I wish we did, but I'm going to skip around a little bit. But the first thing I want you to see with the birth of Jesus is God provided the perfect people for Christmas. He could have used anybody, if you think about it, but for some reason he chose the people that he did, and I believe there was a reason for that. I believe he was just waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect time for the perfect people. So without these people, I don't know if Christmas would be the same. Obviously, if you don't have Mary and Joseph and all those kind of people, right? It's Christmas just wouldn't be the same. So 
I want to show you that God provided the perfect people that he needed to fulfill his plan. So in Luke 1, 11 through 17, let's go ahead and read that together really quickly. So it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, so we're talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, all right? These are the parents of John the Baptist, all right? I'll give you a little spoiler. He was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So before we even get to Jesus and Mary and Joseph, we have Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, they were, the Bible mentions before this, before we started picking up where we did, they were very obedient to God. Um, they followed everything that, you know, God told them to do and that sort of thing. But they did not have any children. Elizabeth was barren, and she was very old at this time, too. Um, so she didn't think that she'd be able to have any children. Well, all of a sudden, an angel appears to Zachariah and says, Hey, uh, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. And Zachariah hit, at first is like, um, well, no, that's not going to happen. Have you seen her? She's like, you know, really old, and we haven't had a baby in all these years. So I don't really know what you think you're talking about, old angel of the Lord. Um, and then it, it, he, the angel actually uh, basically like wires Zachariah's mouth shut. He's not allowed to talk because he's like, how dare you, you know, question me. I'm the Lord, that sort of thing. Um, and he actually, Zachariah is not able to speak until John is actually born, um, which I think is an interesting side note. But so God is providing John the Baptist. Now, if you know anything about John the Baptist, he's a couple months older than Jesus. Um, and he actually starts ministry before Jesus, and he sort of prepares the way. He starts going and baptizing them, and he talks about the Messiah that will come and that sort of thing. So God is actually providing, even before Jesus is born, um, God is providing an entrance into ministry for his son because he's providing a way, he's providing like an icebreaker almost in John the Baptist to kind of prepare and pave the way for Jesus to start his ministry before Jesus is even born. And I think that's cool that he was able to construct that in such a way that before we even hear anything about the Savior, anything about the son being born, we have John the Baptist who is already being born to prepare the way. Now, there's another interesting point about Elizabeth that I want to highlight, and that is in chapter 1, 30 through 36. Um, and we're also going to talk about Mary as well, because um, you can't talk about Jesus without Mary. Um, so now we are focused on Mary, and it says, An angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give you the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And here, this is key, this is key. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her, own, in her old age. And she was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So we have Elizabeth and Mary, who we now know are relatives. 
And I think that's so crucial that God is using relatives in this sense, right? Because I gotta, I, I gotta imagine um, Mary is a teenage girl. Most people, most historians estimate she's probably 15, 16 in that area. Um, she is engaged to be married. She's a teenager. And then all of a sudden, she gets this angel that appears to her and says, by the way, you're pregnant. Um, and not only that, not only are you pregnant, it's the Holy Spirit's, and um, no pressure, but you're kind of going to have the Son of God, so, you know, take care of it, right? Like, I, I cannot imagine Mary's mindset at that point. As a 15, 16-year-old girl, she is probably freaking the heck out. I cannot imagine, right? I just can't. At 15 and 16, I was not thinking about, you know, having to be the father of like the son of Jesus or something like that, or the son of God, right? Like I just, I, I couldn't fathom that. So what God did is he used relatives because a little later on in that passage, again, we don't have time to read it, that talks about Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Now the Bible doesn't necessarily say what they talked about or why they met, but I can just imagine Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her relative, and says, girl, you gotta give me, you gotta help me out. Give me some comfort. Give me some peace. Give me some advice. You know, an angel came to you and angels come to me. You know, we both didn't think we were, this was going to happen to us. I'm 16. You're a little older or, you know, a lot older. Please help me out. God used relatives. He brought them together to give Mary this sense of comfort and peace, right? What if she didn't have that? What if Mary had nobody to go to? What if Mary didn't, wasn't able to go to Elizabeth and talk and say, hey, you know, can you give me some advice? Can you comfort me? Right Now, again, we don't really know what happened, but I can imagine that's probably what happened, um, that she was wanting some sort of advice. I would want advice if I was a girl and 15 and pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? I would want somebody to say something to me. I don't really know what, but like help me out a little bit. So we see that God is providing a support system for Mary, because the last thing God wants is Mary, who is having his son, to, to freak out, not be comfortable, be stressed out, um, not know what to do, right? But God purposely constructed this perfect structure of Christmas to give Mary a support system by using relatives. Um, and I think that's so cool. Um, and not to mention the fact that Jesus and then John the Baptist would also be relatives as well. So as that happens, John the Baptist is paving the way for Jesus that are related as well. Now, there's one more person that we have to talk about, and that's, uh, that's your boy Joseph. So we need to talk about Joseph as well. Because obviously as a man, I relate to Joseph a little bit, and I can only imagine what's going through Joseph's mind here. Let's read in Matthew 1. Let's skip over to Matthew. Um, it's going to be Matthew 1, 18 through 24. And I just want to put you in the mindset of Joseph here, all right? So this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she found out to be pregnant. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, which is what we just talked about. The angel came to her and said, hey, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And she goes, what? Okay. So that's where we're at. But after, oh wait, 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Uh, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Now, let's talk about Joseph. So, let's say that I'm engaged to be married, which I was, not anymore, I'm married now. But I get engaged to be married, and, you know, we, we've, we're talking for a little bit, we're engaged, obviously we've been dating for a while, you know, and then all of a sudden, I find out before we get married that she's pregnant. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, hold on here. You mean to tell me we've been dating we're engaged. You accept my engagement, and all of a sudden, you're trying to tell me that you're, you're pregnant now. And I know that it's not mine, right? I know, that's, I know that for a fact. So imagine Joseph's mindset. He's ready to marry her. He, he's ready to go through. He's ready to go through with it. Then all of a sudden, we find out that she's pregnant. And Joseph was a follower of the law at the time, and the law stated that if this happened, um, you had to divorce you had to divorce her. Or before you even got married, you know, you had to sort of break it off at that point. That's what the law stated because they had been unfaithful. Um, And Joseph was a follower of the law, so he was like, well, crap, I got to do it. But he was going to do it in sort of a dignified way, right? That's what the Bible told us, that he didn't want to make a big scene. He didn't want to cause a big fuss. He was just going to do it quietly and then sort of slip away. Imagine how disappointed he was, right? He wanted to marry Mary. He wanted to to Mary, comma, Mary, right? Um, He wanted to marry Mary. She was probably a really good girl. Um, She was probably really content. She was probably gonna make an awesome wife. He was probably loved hanging out with her. She was probably a great girlfriend. You know, they were so close to getting married. He had probably already put like a non-refundable deposit down on the wedding venue or whatever. And he's like, oh crap. And there goes that money, right? Like he was so upset. And I love where it says um, that he had contemplated or he sort of thought about divorcing, right? He, he considered it. And then it says, after he had considered it, an angel appeared to him. And an angel said, hey, listen, man, right there, verse 20. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, hey, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is not something Mary has done. It's not something you have done. It's from the Holy Spirit. Right, So all of a sudden, Joseph goes from contemplating divorcing her to all of a sudden now being the father of the son of God, right? In like a matter of like nothing, right? So I can just imagine Joseph's mindset here and what he's thinking. The way that he goes from like zero to 100, like real quick, right? Like all of a sudden you're from divorce and now all of a sudden you're the father of the son of God. And you're like, whoa. So... The thing about these people that God used is he used them all for a purpose. God knew that Joseph wasn't going to fly off the handle. And as soon as he found out she was pregnant, he was just going to divorce her like immediately, right? No, it said that he contemplated it. He considered it. He took time to think about it. He didn't just fly off the handle. He didn't accuse Mary of doing something. He wasn't going to like make a big scene. He knew that Mary was going to be able to handle whatever he threw at her. He knew that using Mary and Elizabeth as relatives, they would be able to to comfort each other and bring peace through this time together. God knew exactly what he was doing with the people he used. He was creating that perfect structure. Again, this idea of using the perfect pieces to create this image of what he wanted for the birth of his son. 
So not only did he provide the perfect people, he also provided the perfect timing. Uh, Pastor Frank talked last week about um, sort of the, the prophets and the uh, prophecies of when Jesus was to be born. And there's all kinds of like the timing, the place, the, the where, the who, the what, the why, all that sort of stuff had already been prophesied. So it's interesting to see how God worked together to make all of this happen. Because let's read in Luke 2, uh, 1 through 4. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Canarius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Here's the deal. The prophets had already prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Okay, well, Mary and Joseph are pregnant. However, um, they live in Nazareth. So how are we going to get these people to Bethlehem? Because we have to fulfill the prophecy. Well, now we have the perfect timing. There's a census. All of a sudden, God said, hey, this is my perfect timing. Check it out. Now we see the Son of God is going to be born in Bethlehem. Because Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee to Judah to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. That gets Jesus exactly where he's supposed to be born. It's the perfect timing. God was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect people to come along, for the perfect timing to come along, and here we have it, right? So all of this has been building in order to get to fulfill the prophecy that had been stated in the Old Testament before, the perfect timing. We also have the perfect place. Not only do we have the perfect timing, but we have the perfect place. Let's read Luke 2, 6 through 7. While they were there, talking about Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, we've all been here before. Um, we've all planned a last-minute vacation, and we've decided to just get up and drive somewhere. And then all of a sudden, we get to this town. It's like nighttime. We're dying. We're sleeping. We're like, oh, my gosh, please, somebody help me. And then you find out that there just so happens to be some sort of festival or some sort of something going on in this town, and there's absolutely zero rooms available in any hotel you check into, right? And then you end up having to, like, stay at some, like, sketchy motel on the side of the interstate where you're afraid you're, you know, going to get, like, broken into. And anyway, whatever. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But so that's, that's exactly what's happening here with Joseph and Mary. They go to this town of Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden, they, they were just going to register, right? All they were doing was going to, yep, I'm here. This is, this, is my, this is my bloodline. All right, can I go back home now, right? Well, all of a sudden, instead, they're about to have a baby, all of a sudden, Mary finds a very inconvenient time to have the Son of God. How dare her, right? When there's no room for them to stay. So Joseph, I can imagine, is going around knocking on every single door. He's like, hey, she's like giving birth. You got anywhere for me to stay? Nope. All right, next. Hey, she's like giving birth. Anywhere for me to stay? Nope. All right, next. So he's knocking on all these doors. And then all of a sudden, he's like, well, I'm out of doors. There is no place here because everybody is in town for this stupid census, right? Everybody is in town for the same reason we are, and we have absolutely nowhere to stay. Well, then we have one guest in owner or whatever. We have one guy who says, hey, uh, you know, I don't have any room, but I got like a stable out back where I keep my animals. I mean, you, you, I mean, you can stay there if you want to. And Joseph at this point really has no other option, right? It's either that or she's going to have to give birth on top of the donkey that they rode in on, I guess. Uh, it's one or the other. So I guess I would take a stable too at that point. Um, 
So they get into this stable, and I think this is, we see this as sort of like a, uh, like a barrier or like a roadblock to the birth of Jesus. But this is exactly how God intended it from the very beginning. See, God did not intend for his son to be born in a palace with nurses and maids and extravagant gifts and people just like lavishing over him, right? That's not God how intended this at all. God intended for his son to be born in humility, in sort of a normal person sense, right? Because the, the whole idea and the whole prophecy and the whole vision and blueprint of Christmas is to be a savior for everybody. It's to be a savior for, for you know, the, the, the poor, the middle class, the rich, for everybody and all people. Well, what kind of image does that portray if the son of God, the savior, is born in a rich, fancy palace that I have no idea what that's like? So we might see this as sort of like, well, that's a pretty crappy way to treat the son of God, having him born in the stable out back, right? That's exactly what God intended. Because God wanted the son to be born in something that we understand. God wanted his son to be born in, in poverty, in not the best conditions, in darkness, in sort of, um, you know, like kind of run down shambles because that, that's how most of us are. Most of us, our lives aren't built like an extravagant palace palace with nurses and maids and all sorts of fancy stuff. That's not what our, most of our life is like. Most of our life is more built like the stable that he was born in. And in order for, for us to understand that Savior, and in order for, for Jesus to die for our sins, we need to have that comfort in knowing, hey, Jesus knows exactly what we went through, because so did he. And that's why this is so key and so crucial for you to understand that God constructed this entire Christmas season, this entire structure of exactly how he wanted, because it's for us. It wasn't necessarily about, you know, what he wanted for his son, obviously, because, you know, he ended up having to sacrifice his only son. It's all about us. It's about what Jesus came and died for you and for me. And we need to get that. We need to understand that that's what Christmas is about. It's not about the extravagance. It's not about, you know, all these sorts of different kinds of things that we tend to commercialize Christmas about. It's about the Son of God, the Savior of the world, being born in like a feeding trough, wrapped in, you know, whatever they can find, probably like a burlap sack or something, right? That's the image of Christmas. Not the, the, the kind of doctored up version that we get every year. That's the real image of Christmas. And it's so that way it's relevant to us because that's what we can identify with. Speaking of extravagance and speaking of, you know, the, the way God intended for Jesus to be, he also provided the perfect audience. So we have the perfect people. We have the perfect timing, the perfect place. And now God has also provided the perfect audience. So there are two groups of people who actually came and visited um, Jesus when he was born. And I think it's very telling the people who came to visit him. The first were the shepherds, all right? Let's, let's read their account first, and then we'll talk about why shepherds are important. Um, so that's in Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Okay, let, let's actually, you know what, let's just stop. Check out that very first part. Shepherds living out in the fields, all right? 
Shepherds were living, these people were literally living out in nature. They were living with their sheep, all right, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Just keep that in mind, all right. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing has been happened that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard, which had been just as they had been told. Now, shepherds are an interesting group of people. At this time, in the biblical time, Shepherds were seen as sort of the, the lowest of low class, right? We just read about it in the first verse. They, they lived in the fields. Um, they literally lived with their flocks. They lived with their sheep. They didn't take showers. They slept out with their animals. They didn't, you know, have time to, to change clothes or have fancy clothes or anything like that. Um, they literally just followed their sheep around and grazed in the fields. These shepherds were considered, again, to be sort of the lowest of low class of people. And I think it's very telling about the character and nature of God and our Savior that the very first people to visit Jesus were shepherds. The people who were stinky, the people who were dirty, the people who were nasty, the people who other, the rest of society saw as lower than everybody else. I think it's very telling about the character and nature of God that the first people that he wanted to see Jesus were those people. The first people that he wanted to surround Jesus was with the people who probably needed him the most, right? The shepherds. That's so telling even to today. What this shows is that Jesus is not just meant for rich, extravagant people. It's meant for people like the shepherds. It's meant for people like us, honestly. It's meant for people who are broken Jesus, the Savior, is meant for people who are dirty, who are disgusting, who are nasty, who, you know, live outside with animals, you know, whatever you want to say. Jesus is for everybody. And, I, again, it's so important to understand that those are the first people who got the awesome privilege to see Jesus with shepherds, the people who were the lowest of low. Not only did shepherds come to see Jesus, but we also have the account of the wise men, or the magi, as some translations call them, um, and that is going to be in uh, Matthew 2, 19 through 11. Now, these magi are just as important as the shepherds, but for a little different reason, all right, um, and I'll explain that in a minute, but let's read their account first. Um, Matthew 2, starting in verse 9, it says, after they had heard the king, these are talking about the wise men, um, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these wise men, or magi, 
Uh, we know they come from the east, but we don't really necessarily know exactly where. Uh, most historians and scholars argue that they come somewhere from in the area of like uh, Iraq or Iran or uh, maybe even like Saudi Arabia or even like further south like Yemen or something like that. Um, so they came from decently far away. Um, and they brought sort of gifts and things like that. But here's what is important, and here's what I need you to understand about these wise men. And this is something that I never really thought about until, you know, I had been preparing for this. And it's just something that has kind of passed over my head. So these wise men coming from the east, all right, they're, that is outside of Israel. That is outside of the Jewish people. That is outside of the Jewish culture. These wise men, these magi, probably were not Jewish. Um, they probably knew a little bit about it because they were, you know, scholars. They were reading books and things like that. But they were outside of the Jewish tradition, which means they were Gentiles. They were outside of God's chosen people. And for God to construct Christmas in such a way that he brought Gentiles to come visit the Savior is huge because that just shows that Jesus is not just for Jews or not just for, you know, people who believe in him, but it's for people even outside of that. It's for people who are outside of the religion of Christ. It is for people who may not necessarily believe what Jesus is all about, but he came and he was born for those people as well. So the two groups of people who came to visit Jesus when he was born was the shepherds who were poor and dirty and nasty, and then magi from some other country who didn't even believe really in God at the time or wasn't even part of the Jewish tradition. So what this shows, the people that God constructed, the audience that God constructed to see Jesus were two totally different types of people. But what it shows is that Jesus is for everybody. Jesus is for the poor, the broken, um, the, 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 the nasty, but he's also for the people who don't necessarily believe in him. He's for the people who are outside of religion to bring them in. Jesus is for everybody. And the way that God constructed this was so, so important. Um, he, didn't just, he didn't just come for Jews. He didn't just come, you know, for, for those people. He came for everybody. And he didn't come for just the rich people because he was born in a stable, right? He was born for everybody. So as we sort of wrap wrap this up, I guess, and put a, put a bow on it, right? Um, it's Christmas after all. Um, as we're kind of constructing the end of this, this, this house, let, let's kind of bring it back. Let's, let, let's bring it back. So when you're building a house or you're buying a house, you're always looking for the, the, perf, the perfect thing, right? That's, that's why you're buying a house. That's why you're building your own house is to make it as perfect as possible. Well, when Brittany and I, my wife, when we were buying our house last year, we looked at a bunch of different houses to find the perfect one that fit our needs. We had a list and we said, okay, we need this to accomplish this. We need a big kitchen because she likes to cook and bake. We need um, a big closet because I have a lot of clothes, not her, but I have a lot of clothes and I need closet space. Um, we need a carpet because I like carpet because it makes my toes feel nice. Um, we need a backyard because we have a dog and, uh, you know, he needs to run around, although he doesn't like our yard now, so that's kind of pointless. Um, but we had a list of things that we needed um, to, to, to make our life perfect, right? We had a list of things we had to accomplish with our home. 
When you build a home, it's the same thing. You say, I want this, I want this, I want this, because it fits who we are as a family. We need this many bedrooms because we have this many kids. Uh, We need this and this because we have this. Well, if we're constructing Christmas, we can see all of the perfect pieces God put in place to construct the house that was perfect for the goal that he had in mind. He used the perfect people. The people that he knew were going to be able to handle being the parents to the son of God. I mean, come on. Like, that cannot be an easy job. I cannot imagine, you know, an angel coming to my wife and I and saying, hey, by the way, you're going to be, you know, carrying the, the you know, you're going to be carrying my son. You're going to call him Jesus. You know, take, take good care of him, right? I'd flip out. I, c- I couldn't handle that. But God used people he knew he could because that had to accomplish his purpose. He used the perfect timing. He used the perfect place because he wanted the world to know, hey, my son is born just like all of you. My son is born, you know, even sometimes maybe in worse conditions than you were born in. And he used the perfect audience to show, hey, my son is for everybody. My son is for you and you and you and you and me, and it's for everybody. We can see God constructing his perfect house, right, to accomplish the goals that he wanted for his son, for his savior, for his idea of Christmas. So as we bring it home, um, I want to go back to the very beginning of this message that we just talked about. Talked about dead ends, right? In order to start again or in order to sort of begin again, begin anew, you got to have a dead end somewhere. Typically, you don't want to start over something that you're doing well in, right? I'll be the first to admit, um, I get frustrated at video games more than I should. Um, I, I mean, I die and lose all the time, and then I end up, like, just shutting it off and, like, you know, tossing the controller in the air, and then I want to start again. Well, that's because I was doing something bad. Like, I was losing or I was dying all the time. So I, I started over, Right? I was rage quitting, and then so I had to start over. Why in the world would I want to start over if I was doing well? Like, if I'm playing, like, an NBA basketball game, um, and I'm, like, winning by 30 points, I don't want to start over. I'm doing well. Like, please, and, you know, don't unplug the TV or something. I did that the other day. I was so mad. Um, But you, you typically don't want to start over when you're doing something well. This idea of Christmas is to show you, hey, it's a new beginning. Jesus is a new beginning. My, God is saying, my Savior, my Son, is a new beginning for you in case you're at one of those dead ends. In case your life is filled with losing or, you know, figuratively death, right, like those video games. In case that's your life, if that's where you're at, Christmas is for you. Because I see you at that dead end. And I see you struggling and I see you in your darkness and I see you in that period where heaven is silent and not speaking to you. And I want you to know that my son Jesus and this time for Christmas is for you. That's exactly what it was for. Born in the midst of darkness, like pastor just talked about. We're gonna talk at Christmas Eve about Jesus being that light. Let Jesus be that light for you in the middle of your darkness. Let Jesus be the one to be born and begin again, begin anew, because he's the only one who can do that for you. See, what's unique to Christianity about all other religions is that our Savior, Jesus, came to earth and experienced life as one of us. No other religion can claim that. 
And he did that because when you're struggling, when you're in the dark place, when you're hurting, when you're in pain, Jesus can say, yeah, bro, I know, I was there. That's unique to Christianity. And it's so important and so crucial you get that because Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. The Bible talks about how he was tempted over and over and over and over and over again, but he never gave in because he was Jesus, he was the savior, but he knows what that temptation feels like. So if you're here and you're saying, man, I, I know Jackson that you're saying that savior is for me, but you, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. He's not. You, those shepherds that came to see Jesus, I'm dirtier than they are. And that's saying something. I get that and I hear you, but you know what else? Jesus gets it. God gets it. He hears you. He was there for you. And he is still there for you. That story of Christmas and that story of the shepherds and being born in a stable and being born in just awful conditions, that still stands true today. So if there's one thing I need you to understand about this whole constructing Christmas thing, the way he did it perfectly, it's for you. He constructed Christmas specifically and exactly for you and for me. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, man, you're right. I'm at a dead end. I need something. I'm tired of quitting and restarting. I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of unplugging the TV and throwing this controller across the room and giving up and having to start again. I wanna start one more time and I need it to be the right time. I wanna start one more time and I need it to be the perfect situation and the perfect new beginning. And if that's you, I'm here to tell you, there's no better time than Christmas. There is no better time than the birth of the new beginning in Christ's son, Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we pray. And if you're one of those people that need, need a fresh start, if you're one of those people that need to begin again, if you're one of those people who are in desperate, desperate need of a savior, Jesus is here for you. Jesus was born for people that are broken and, and messed up like you and me because I'm no different. And he came and he was born to rescue and save me and he can do the exact same for you. And if that's you, I just want you to, to say this little prayer with me to say, God, I'm sorry. God, I, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinful person. I know that and I realize that, but God, I, I don't want that to be my life anymore. I want you to forgive me for all my sins. I believe that you are the one true God and I believe that you sent your son Jesus to, to be born and then die on the cross for somebody broken and messed up like me. And I believe, God, that your son Jesus can save me and forgive me for all of my sins. And I believe that you are God forever and ever. And if you just said that prayer with me, 
please find me or find pastor or find somebody after service and let them know, hey, I messed up. Hey, I'm broken, but I want Jesus to be my savior. And maybe Jesus is already your savior. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, Jackson, that's great. Like, he is my savior, but I, 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 I still need some help. There's no better time than Christmas or a new year to start again. Maybe you didn't live last year like you thought you would, or maybe some bad things happened last year that you want to restart. There is no better time than Christmas or a new year. So I pray that you, you begin again, or I pray that you sort of kind of take that idea and start over um, to know that Jesus is for you. God, we love you. I thank you for everybody in this room. And I thank you for everybody that's not even in this room, but across campus, God. I thank you for you. And I thank you for sending your great, mighty, powerful, awesome, wonderful son, Jesus, to come into this life, to live as one of us, to be tempted as one of us, to feel pain, to feel brokenness, to feel misery like us, just so he could say, Jackson, I got you. I know what you're going through. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And most importantly, God, thank you for your love. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.